0: G'day. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. This is a podcast that does what it says on the box. It makes your day-to-day better than yesterday. We've been here since 2013, and each episode does just that uh, through conversations that I have with my guests and conversations that I have with you. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm here. Mondays, Wednesdays with a guest, Friday with you. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a person that gets the gap filler and shoves it in a little hole. The bloody mouse is eaten out from none of the skirting boards, haven't I? Yeah. I do love animals, but I don't love them in my living room. <laughs> Uninvited. Dogs, my dogs are fine, but not the mice, if that's okay. This is, I think this is the last one of our best of episodes, the uh, best of 2022, which I asked my team who make the show with me to pick, and they picked their four favorite most impactful episodes of the year. So if you are a new listener, you are getting the good stuff. You're getting the gold. You're getting the cream of the crop. You're getting the best stuff that we've got. And this is uh, the last one. It's Kylie Moore Gilbert. This is a heck of a listen. Oh, man, it's a good listen, but far out. This was really, really intense, this story. But it's great. It's ultimately quite inspiring. And I, I certainly took a lot from it. I know you will too. The team that did pick this do need to be paid to pay that team. I need to play some ads. So I will play some ads and then we'll be back with Kylie Moore Gilbert.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: Once I understood how it worked, that they would use me to extort my government to get some sort of concession, and I was a bargaining chip in some diplomatic game, I didn't believe their threats to give me the death penalty because I thought, well, what use is that? You know, you want something from Australia. If you kill me, it's just going to be bad PR for you and you're going to get nothing in return. (laughs) So I just laughed at them and said, that's bullshit. I don't believe you. But um, after they sent my case to court and I realized that it doesn't matter what I do, they've put me up for this charge of espionage despite zero evidence, despite my cooperating with them initially in the interrogations. I may as well resist them and and claw back some shred of dignity in doing so. Because if you just sit back and let other people, bad people, do things to you and you're a passive victim of that and never stand up for yourself, you dehumanise yourself as well.
0: That is Carly Moore Gilbert. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this is Better Than Yesterday. Kylie Moore Gilbert is a lecturer of Islamic Studies at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. In 2017, Kylie obtained her PhD for her thesis. Uh, I'm going to have to read it because the title is excellent Shi'i Opposition and Authoritarian Transition in Contemporary Bahrain The Shifting Political Participation of a Marginalized Majority. Look, she clearly knows this stuff. She speaks English, Hebrew, and Arabic and she's in demand in her field. And as an academic who's in demand in her field, she lectures and she attends conferences in Australia and all around the world. And it was at one of those academic conferences in 2018 that Kylie Moore Gilbert was arrested in Iran by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. She was charged with espionage and sentenced to prison for 10 years with no contact to the outside world, with no access to any diplomats, Kylie somehow, somehow, managed to keep her mental health in check. The story of how she did that, how she maintained her dignity, maintained her humanity, maintained her will to live through fierce resistance, is something that I personally was so inspired by. And I don't think you or I or anyone we love is... Going to get imprisoned by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard in a hurry, or well, at least I hope not. However, what you'll hear through this conversation, I can guarantee this because it happened to me, what you'll hear in this conversation will just arm you to the teeth with tools, with techniques, with ways to think about the challenges, the challenges that we face in everyday life. It may not be 10 years in Iranian prison but it might feel like that. Our brain plays tricks on us. Our brain makes things feel like they're, you know, the worst thing in the world, when clearly we just forgot our plastic bags on the boot and now we're gonna have to buy some of the register. You know what I mean? It's an extraordinary conversation and an incredible story. We just only scratched the surface, but Kylie has written a book about her time in Iran. It's called The Uncaged Sky. It's out now on Ultimo Press. And it's an incredible document of her experience of spending 804 days imprisoned against her will, much of that time in solitary confinement. It's an amazing conversation, and I'm so grateful that Kylie took the time to have it with me. Enjoy. Uh, firstly, um, I'm really, really grateful uh, you could be here today, Kylie. Where, where do you join us from today?
3: Um, the
0: Dandenong Rangers near Melbourne. Right, right, right. I was, I was, I grew up in Brisbane and I always kind of envied that that Melbourne had these, uh, kind of bits where Melbourne ended and the rest of the kind of kind of country bit started. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brisbane just kind of goes until Toowoomba and until the Sunshine Coast and down to the Gold Coast it just keeps going. Uh, so it's lovely that you get a chance to kind of get out a bit. Is it, uh, is it semi-rural where you are?
3: Yeah. Um it's at the end of the Melbourne train line. So it's it's kinda like the Blue Mountains vis a vis Sydney, you know, it's the train goes to it. it, but it's um pretty mountainous bush landscape.
0: That's, oh, that is that's pretty pretty glorious. But you didn't uh you didn't grow up there, did you? You kinda grew up uh kind of midwest and New South Wales, didn't you? Yeah,
3: I was actually born in Gosford on the central coast of New South Wales and then when I was about nine or ten moved to Bathurst, Central West New South Wales, yeah
0: and what was what was that like going from the beach to Bathurst
3: yeah well you know obviously I would have preferred to stay at the beach (laughs) but um, as a as a nine-year-old I didn't really have much say in the matter but you know Bathurst these days is much more happening than it was when I was growing up I, I remember when the first cinema opened in Bathurst which was when I was a teenager and that was very exciting so before that we didn't even have a picture theater um it was yeah, and not not a very exciting place to grow up.
0: Oh man! So you you went. What 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 were your parents into? What were the what what brought took them to to make that kind of move?
3: Oh, it was for my dad's work. Yeah, he was working in logistics fa- factory logistics or something.
0: Right, right, right. And it was like, kids, here we go.
3: Yep, basically.
0: So you're a kid at high school in Bathurst. I'm I'm guessing once you're in Bathurst and you can see your eighteenth birthday arriving, what's going through <laughs> your head as you're seeing that kind of freedom coming up on the horizon?
3: Oh, I was like, I need to get the hell out of Bathurst. That was uh, that that had been my priority for years before my eighteenth birthday. And most people do, to be honest. Most of my school cohort also moved to Union Sydney or elsewhere. Um, and a lot of us did go to the UK after uni, like, you know, it, it, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be a kind of Aussie tradition to take a gap year, go over to the UK, working holiday, et cetera. So I did that and I just didn't come home. <laughs> and um, because I had a British passport, I could do my uni studies over there as a local student. And, you know, I got into Cambridge to do Middle Eastern studies, which was literally just me as a 20-something kid saying, oh, this looks like a fun degree because I can live in the Middle East for a year. (laughs) That was a requirement of the degree. So that was really one of the reasons why I I chose to do it.
0: What was it about the Middle East that intrigued you?
3: Well, I'd backpacked in the Middle East. I traveled around the Middle East quite a bit. Um, You know, know, I spent a couple of years working and traveling in Europe, in India, in China, in the Middle East uh, before I went to uni. And I just loved it. It was just so interesting. And I wanted to learn Middle Eastern languages. I'd always loved languages. I'd always had a bit of an aptitude for them, and this degree just was the whole package. You know, you were forced to learn languages. You were forced to live in the Middle East for a year. Um, you know, you could study all sorts of things like politics, history, anthropology, linguistics, uh, religion, anything linked to the Middle East. So. I just found it fascinating and you could, there's nothing like that in Australia. You can't study such a thing in Australia as an undergrad, you know, the whole package yeah. of every subject under the sun as long as it's linked to one part of the world. So um, I just thought it was great and and applied for it and somehow miraculously got accepted and, and so that's how I kind of fell into it really.
0: My ex-wife uh, is Israeli. I've spent a fair amount of time there. I, I know my experience is having grown up in Australia and hearing and seeing on the news and knowing the kind of religious dogma that was kind of ingrained into me through the secular structure of our society, but also through you know various holidays and things throughout the year and also the othering of everybody that wasn't that. Mm. I know what it meant for me to suddenly be surrounded by it. What was it like for you?
3: I enjoyed my time in Israel. It, it was culturally very different and i feel that i learned a lot about different aspects of israeli culture because i spent time on a kibbutz for example for five months uh working there in a kindergarten with children which you know kids don't lie to you like they tell you straight up you know like my hebrew grammar was terrible and they would just laugh at me (laughs) you know like it was a bit of a baptism of fire trying to um to fit in there. And then, you know, I spent time in Tel Aviv. I spent time in Haifa. I lived in the city of Haifa for about six months as well and went around the West Bank, backpacked around the West Bank too. And I feel like I had a really positive experience there. And you have a whole lot of stereotypes about Israel or positive and negative ideas about what it would be like. And um, and the Arab countries as well, because I, I traveled a lot around the Arab countries neighbouring Israel, even to Syria because, you know, this was before the war there, and to Turkey as well and Egypt and Jordan and various other places. So, you know, it, it was just such a fascinating insight. And I feel yeah. like I learned a lot. You, you, you only learn these things by going there. There's no yeah, you, manner of books and, you know, you, you've yeah. got to go there.
0: When you went through the – I'm interested to know your take on this. When you went through the West Bank and you saw – you know, obviously knowing the history of the country, when you, threw the, when you went through the West Bank and you saw the, the people that were living there and, you know, how uh, settlement uh, was, um, I guess, you know, being used as a way of putting pressure on that population, what did it, um, what, what went, as an Australian looking at it, you know, what were what some things that were suddenly clear to you?
3: I saw some really ugly sites involving settlers in the West Bank. And I also visited some regular, everyday suburbs of Jerusalem that were technically settlements like Maale Adumim. So I I guess I got both sides in a way. Um, I, I went to Hebron on my own, on a bus, I just because I heard it's got a beautiful old city and a beautiful wall, and yep. I wanted to see the, the Tomb of the Patriarchs and, you know, a, a bit of a thrill-seeker maybe, but I was quite young at that point, and it wasn't super unsafe when I was there. Like, it was relative, obviously. And um, I, the settlers in Hebron are among the most extreme in all of the West Bank, and, you know, the Palestinians had hung chicken wire above the souk, which was open air, um, because the settlers had occupied all of the apartments above the, the souk stalls and would just throw their rubbish down onto the, the pavement below, including dirty nappies and this kind of thing, deliberately. Um, and the, the chicken wire would catch all the rubbish then above the stalls and you would just see litter above your head. And I, I asked them, what is this? Like, is this some sort of bizarre art installation? Why is there all of these Coke cans and chip packets above our heads? And they said, Oh I no, mean, that's the settlers. You know, we put that there because they throw out their rubbish down on top of us. You know, and I, I I tried I went to the tomb of the patriarchs, which is where Abraham and Sarah and um you know are buried and there's um it's split in half and it's half a mosque, half a synagogue. It's totally bizarre. And the 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 split even comes down to the actual tomb itself where the bodies are buried and they're split in half so that each side has access to to touch it I guess or pray right up against it and I, I went into the mosque section with a with a Palestinian man who I'd you know who was showing me around giving me permission to be there obviously. And a group of settlers arrived into the mosque without warning, without permission, without invitation, and they they refused to take off their shoes. And, you know, in a mosque, you've got to take off your shoes at the door, and and there's always beautiful carpets, and you're supposed to walk on them, you know, with respect. And they didn't take off their shoes, and they just stomped around. There was about 15 of them stomping around with their shoes and went right up to the tomb on the Muslim side and wanted to pray there and asserting, I guess, their ownership over the whole place, not half of it. And um, the, the Palestinian caretakers ran in front of them, had these mats that they, like, and they were bending down on the ground like servants, like these guys were kings or something, and they were placing the mats on the floor just before they stepped so that they wouldn't step and soil the carpets of the mosque. And wow. that just the symbolism of that. It just broke my heart and it, it was enraging and so disrespectful and rude. And, you know, I went into the synagogue side of the tomb as well and there were no Muslims there and, you know, soldiers were guarding it. And it it, it just really broke my heart that, you know, it's supposed to be a place of religious worship and yet. The disrespect and the and the conflict itself is permeating even that holy site so I, I did see some horrendous things but also I went to some settlements that weren't full of extremists and were just you know regular everyday people living in Jerusalem and you know yeah so what yeah. you've described
0: what you've described is something that I think that I grew up in Brisbane you know when you can drive in Queensland you can drive for four days and still be in Queensland. You know, yeah. it, it's, it, and what you've described was the thing I think to me that really impressed upon me how intense proximity plays a role in the situation in the Middle East about how it's literally street to street. You know, it's not like, oh, the border, oh, the border's way over there. I remember standing uh, on, on Mount Hebron and there's, we look down, like there's Lebanon, there's Syria, there's Jordan, like you can with your eyes yeah. you can see cars driving around in all these countries and yeah so, so the 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 intense uh amplification of any kind of mistimed word or 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 speech or presence of anyone uh is so tightly wound there um yeah it was a, it was a trick there's mm-hmm. and I guess the thing that I, I took from it Kylie I don't know if this is what you took from it was that when you're far enough away from it, you can go, oh, they should just do this and that. It's like, yeah, that, that, that's one sentence. You're trying to explain like quantum physics, you know, trying to solve this incredibly complicated problem. Um, and it's way more complicated than many people realise. Um, oh, what's happening it's so there.
3: complicated. There's so many layers of complexity and even the people themselves often don't know the full picture of their own history. You know, there's just so much um, propaganda on both sides. Not propaganda, yeah. but myth, mythology. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's such a shame because actually they're really similar <laughs> culturally <laughs> and they are brothers or cousins in a way. And the religions can be quite similar too. And some of the attitudes are quite similar. And it's such a shame that that animosity is developed And you're right, they live in such proximity to one another that it just seems illogical that they wouldn't try and get on because simply they have to share the same space.
0: Yeah, but but yeah, as you mentioned, the mythology and the um, identity of each team, shall we say, Mm. is so enshrined in possession of space is what makes us who we are. Um, And, yeah, however that possession came to be, it's... uh, it's a complex scenario that's that's for sure so you spent time there you've obviously got a bit of arabic up your sleeve um bit of hebrew up your sleeve uh what took you it was a conference that took you to iran wasn't it
3: yeah so i did my phd um in political science focusing on the persian gulf arab states so not on iran i'm not a scholar of iran at all um I'd studied Iran on a very basic level, you know, history, class, that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, so I there was I was invited to go there for a one-week seminar that was being run by an Iranian university. And because I'd been researching the Shia community in Bahrain at that point, and Iran is a Shia state, the biggest, you know, most influential Shia state um, in the Islamic world, so it made sense to go there and, and learn more about, their religious sect in this seminar and because they invited me and it seemed like a great opportunity um, my university supported it and paid for my flights and it was a good networking opportunity too because there were other scholars from europe and north america and other places that i could that were joining as well that i could get to know so it it, you know academics do these kinds of things all the time and um, it's a kind of a almost a requirement of our job to go to conferences and network and meet other academics so it was a pretty standard thing. And I I did have a little bit of concern. And because of that, I didn't apply for my visa um, at the airport upon arrival, which we can do as Australians in Iran. Um, I went to the embassy in Canberra and applied in advance because I figured, okay, well, they check me out. I mean, I I have been to Israel. Uh, My ex-husband does have an Israeli passport, although he lives in Australia and was born in Russia. And I thought, well, none of that's you know, like if they really wanted to dig into my background and check me out, they could do that in the visa application process. And um, I, you know, I I got advice from people too. You know, other academics who've done research in Iran, and they all said, "Oh no, you'll be fine. You know, it's fairly safe. It's a stable country. I mean, obviously, it's a nasty authoritarian regime, but then every almost every country in the Middle East is, so that's kind of normal as well in a way, sadly. And um, at least you know there are no Terrorist attacks there, and there's no war there, and you know, in comparison to most of its neighbours, it's pretty stable. So yeah. I thought I'd be okay.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was um, when I would travel in and out of Israel, they, uh, they they would always ask me, "Do you want a stamp?" Yeah, because they were happy. They were happy to not stamp me. Yeah, because they know what it means to go through the world for the next couple of years with a with that stamp in your passport. But as you mentioned, it, it's easy to check where you, where you've been. As you landed, did you think anything was up?
3: No, um, I didn't draw any attention at all when I landed. It was just smooth. And, you know, I had the visa in my passport, they stamped it and I went through and um, a representative of the Iranian university picked me up at the airport and it was all great. So I, I only really had an inkling something was up about 24 hours before I tried to fly back to Australia. Other than that, I had a fantastic trip. You know, the seminar was interesting. I did some tourism and travel and, you know, I really liked Iran, it's a fantastic country, it's so interesting, there's so many incredible archaeological sites, and you know, the, like like Persepolis, where I went, relics of the Persian Empire, museums, and it's a mm. beautiful country, and the food's amazing, and yeah, oh. I actually had a really positive time up until that yeah. final moment.
0: Yeah, I can't. Even, I can't even imagine. And I, I, when I lived in LA, LA there's, there's quite a, a diaspora community there of Iranians who left after '79. And yeah, um, yeah they, they they told me about what life was like in Tehran in in the '70s. And of course, there was the, the the classic photos of them, you know, rolling down the main street in Tehran with long hair and flares. And then you <laughs> know, like. Three months later, it was, and you'll get arrested for that. And you know what happened there in the seventies was so profoundly, you know, change, just world changing for 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 everyone. And that you know, it was it was a very intense moment uh, in the world. And there was obviously the very highly publicised uh, Iranian hostage crisis. Had you seen the film Fargo? Oh, sorry, had you seen the film Argo before you had travelled?
3: I I had seen Argo, yeah, years ago. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, like, and it's a good film, actually. Um, But that just seems like a whole other world away to me. Like, you think all that's ancient history. Like, that happened in 79, 1980, and, like, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Like, and it does, unfortunately, but I had no idea. You don't hear about Iran doing these things really um, today, although they do. So, uh, I, I, I didn't have fantasies of spy games and, you know, Ben Affleck sweeping in to save the day, although that would have been nice. <laughs> it, just was, it just felt so disconnected from my reality traveling there for an academic seminar that I, I never even considered that something similar could happen to me.
0: As a woman rolling around the streets of, of Tehran and, and the outskirts and the kind of more remote, I guess, archaeological sites, did you feel, how different was it to uh, you know, walking around a uh,
3: Western city? It wasn't that different. I mean, Tehran's very modern and like certain parts of Tehran are pretty modern. You have to wear the hijab and the manto, which is like a long coat that comes down to your knees. But people there in Tehran are so... A lot of people are quite secular and the hijab comes all the way back on their head and their hair spilling out and they're wearing a full face of makeup and a very, very tight manto accentuating their figure and it's not really particularly Islamic, but when I was in Qom, which is like the Vatican City of Iran, it's a really ultra-religious conservative city, which was where the um, seminar was. That was quite different. Everybody was wearing black chadors, which basically just leaves your face exposed and then runs from your head all the way down to the ground, like a sheet, mm. basically. Like yeah. a, wearing a sheet attached to your head, which is very difficult, as I experienced in prison. I, I was constantly falling off my but um but yeah so that was different we had to cover up much more and be more aware of social norms but everybody was still very friendly and it's obvious you're a foreigner so different rules apply they they much more accept that you're not going to understand the dress code properly and you're going to behave in a different way so i don't think even the men the conservative men in com they didn't treat us females from abroad, like they would treat their own women, they made more allowances and understood that we're not going to get it. So everybody was very friendly and warm and and hospitable, even in calm. And it it wasn't that different, really, from the West in that you, you felt safe. I never got harassed. Some Middle Eastern countries I've been to, like Egypt, for example, Sexual harassment in the street is just routine, you know, for for Egyptian women too, not just for foreign women. No matter how covered up you are, people holler at you and wolf whistle and even try to touch you and it's it's quite confronting. But in Iran, everybody's very um, well-behaved and polite and respectful, so you you don't get harassed at all. And it it was like walking around here in the street. You felt safe.
0: On the day of your arrest, did you... Was it different to any other day? Was there things that didn't feel right? Was there a gut feeling?
3: Yeah, I I did have a sense of anxiety because the day before my arrest, some um, unknown men had come to my hotel asking about me and the hotel receptionist told me that, like kind of whispered it to me, hey, my boss didn't want me to tell you, but um, I just want to give you a heads up that a group of men were here asking where where you are and what your room number is. And I tried to press him as to who these guys were obviously because that's a bit scary and he told me that they're very bad men but that they're some sort of police oh. and wouldn't tell me who exactly they were and so that really like unsettled me and I just thought okay well I'm just going to go to the airport as soon as you like I'm going to avoid my hotel I'm going to the airport tomorrow. As long as I don't see these men between now and then, I'll be okay. And I just didn't imagine that they would have put a flight ban on me, So, which is what they did. When I checked in for my flight, I guess some red flag popped up in their system, and they knew I'd arrived, and then they came and picked me up. But I thought, okay, well, I hadn't done anything wrong, so I, I just expected, I don't know who these men are, but... It could just be a mistake or something anyway and I'm going to the airport to fly out to Australia in 24 hours' time so as long as I avoid them until then, I'll be okay. I was very naive in a way.
0: At the airport, when it all started happening, I guess the looks on the faces of the people behind the counter, they kind of know what's up and the people around you would have seen what's happening.
3: Yeah, I'm actually quite pissed at that, to be honest, because it was Emirates. I was flying back on Emirates, it was Emirates check-in staff and they knew they were the ones who probably like flagged it in their system, right? Like I checked in and they took my bags off the carousel in front of me after weighing them and giving me my boarding pass and I actually said to the guy from Emirates, I was like, what are you doing? Why are you not sending my bags through to the plane? And he said he, he didn't look me in the eye. Like he he was looking down and I could tell in retrospect he was uncomfortable and he said some sort of excuse, like, oh, because they're fragile or they're heavy or something, you know, we're taking them off to send somewhere else. And I remember standing there for a moment and being like, that sounds kind of dodgy, I don't believe that, but then like, what do I do, the Emirates staff's telling me that, maybe it's, you know... Fragile baggage, and they're going to send it to the oversized section or something. So I was like, okay, and then I walked off, and literally two minutes later, IOGC operatives approached me and and pulled me into interrogation. So is, that guy knew. I mean, he couldn't do anything. What What could he have no, done? But still, it annoyed me that they lied to me.
0: This is the the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. With anyone that's followed the news over the last fifteen years knows that your mate was right, they're not the greatest people, Um, you know.
3: (laughs) That's an understatement, Uh, I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah. At what point did it go from, oh, this will get sorted out in a few minutes, I'll be fine, I'll make the flight, to I'm not leaving today?
3: They initially gave me mixed messages. So they approached me with this, like, really shifty looking printout for like literally like a word document printed out on like a home computer and said it is all in Farsi which I don't speak and said this is a warrant for your arrest so I was just really freaked out and confused because I I, obviously I thought okay these are the guys from the hotel 100% and a, that doesn't look like an arrest warrant, So and they weren't wearing uniforms, they didn't have badges, nothing. So they didn't look uh, like official police or border security. Yeah. So I was like, is this some sort of mafia gang or something instead? Because it didn't look like an official arrest warrant, not that I'd know what one looks like, and they weren't at all, they were plain clothes. So they could have been anyone, and I yeah. didn't know who they were. They wouldn't tell me who they were. So I didn't even know they were the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps until weeks later, actually. They didn't translate that arrest warrant for me, so I don't even know on what grounds they were arresting me. It it was just so confusing, and I obviously was psychologically in shock at that moment as well. Um, they, They pulled me into an interrogation room inside the airport and questioned me for maybe four hours. And, you know, I was saying to them, look, my flight's leaving at 9.30 p.m. Like, are you going to let me meet my flight? You know, like I've got, you know, half an hour to get to the gate. And they would be like, forget it. You're not getting on that plane. So it, it took a while for it to sink in and process.
0: Were they clear about what they thought you were there to do?
3: Oh, no, not at all. They It was a shakedown. They weren't clear on anything. They wanted to shake me down for information and then build some sort of bogus case on that basis. Right. They didn't um, accuse me of being a spy for most of the interrogation. They, they knew I wasn't a spy. Like, there was no evidence whatsoever. And even the fact that in the end they went with charges of spying for Israel or the uh, tyrannical Zionist regime to quote the actual legal court papers, which is hilarious that that's a uh, a legal um, term in Iran. I didn't actually know that that was what they were going to charge me with until basically I, I went to the court to hear the bill of indictment. They were running all sorts of crazy ideas in the interrogations, theories that I was a Bahraini spy, that I was an Australian spy, an MI6 agent or mainly actually that I wasn't a spy at all, but somebody had tricked me into gathering information for them or, you know, they had all these crazy ideas and and it wasn't actually clear what they would charge me with officially until I went to the court and and heard it for myself.
0: When you're standing in front of a a court, and I'm using air quotes if you're listening, if you're watching this, you'll see them. Uh, When you're standing in front of a court like that, I, I can't imagine the helplessness and the pal, I, I'd assume you've had no contact with anyone Australian diplomatically at this point.
3: The first visit to court, I hadn't had any diplomatic consular assistance at all. But that wasn't my trial. That was to hear the bill of indictment read out, um, and somebody verbally translated it into English for me. Um, so that was like a four-five page document with just dot points, like you're accused of doing this and this and this and this, and it was various detail. And then the charges, which was cooperation in espionage for the Zionist regime. And I met the judge and I saw how shifty he was and that he was just this big, burly, aggressive IRGC type who was clearly a puppet and didn't make any calls or or decisions on his own. So I saw all of that before I had consular assistance. Yeah. But then I had to wait about six months for my trial to be scheduled, and I, I did have um, consular assistance between that point. Um, so, But I didn't have actually diplomatic assistance during my trial because I'd been banned from yeah. um, seeing the embassy at that point as well. So, it, And, you know, the whole thing was like a sham. It was a complete farce. There was no even pretense of, like, justice or judicial norms being followed the whole thing was just from beginning to end a joke. And, you know, what kind of court doesn't allow you to present evidence in your own (laughs) defence? Or Uh, what kind of court doesn't allow you to speak to your own lawyer? I wasn't even allowed to discuss my case with my lawyer.
0: The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps court, that's who.
3: (laughs) Exactly. It was was actually humorous. Like I I found the court entertaining in a way.
0: (laughs) When you're faced with that, amount of powerlessness, that amount of helplessness. What what happens, Kylie? How do you hold on to your sanity?
3: At various points I had various ways of trying to hold on to my sanity. I was in a really terrible, uh, extreme solitary confinement cell at the very, very beginning for the first month and that was just a 2.5 by 2.5 metre box with no window, no natural light, lights on 24 hours a day, um, you know, LED lights in the ceiling, no furniture, no bed, no pillow, nothing, no mattress, nothing to do whatsoever. You're just stuck in that box 23 hours a day. That was very psychologically challenging and it's designed to break you it's deliberate dehumanization and getting through that was a real struggle in the end I did and I managed to after a couple of weeks slow down my brain turn off any mental processes that weren't necessary for day-to-day existence and and the routine of prison and just sort of lie prostrate with the blanket over my head on the ground and just inhabit my long-term memories and just think 20 years back and block out the passage of time and you know like I, I developed a psychological mechanism for dealing with that but the first few weeks before you enter that space in your own mind it's really hell because you're just bouncing off the walls and trying to maintain a grip over your brain which is just has this frenetic energy and, and nothing to you know um, entertain it that was that psychological torture 100% and it's designed oh to break you for interrogation
0: because yeah our brains our brains look for stimulus we look for and if we can't and I've, I can relate because I've, def- I've I've been there um you know if you can't find stuff it starts to invent stuff you know and particularly yeah. if you've got nothing to look at or hear or read or, or whatever um it's it's uh, that you are able to find that space Do you recall, was it a, oh, I'll just do this, or did something start to happen that felt a little bit better and you chose to pursue that? How did you come to the, I'll just close my eyes and think about, you know, Bathurst or or Cambridge or, you know, the cinema or whatever it was?
3: It wasn't a conscious thing at all. You know, I was doing various things during those initial weeks to try to entertain myself, like pulling threads out of the blanket and plaiting them and trying to weave them into different, you know, bracelets or whatever. But you know, there were cameras on us as well. So the guards would be monitoring what we were doing and would come in and stop us from doing that kind of thing as well. But um my brain unconsciously took itself into that headspace wow. after a couple of weeks. And you you're ruminating a lot, you're regretting a lot, you're going over and over again all your mistakes as well and sort of tormenting yourself. I should have done this, I should have done that, why did I get myself into this sticky situation? And you just like, you're really tormenting yourself as well at that point. And I think I became exhausted. My My brain just couldn't sustain the anguish and the anxiety after a few weeks of living in such a horrible headspace and just started to shut down any emotions and any unnecessary thoughts that weren't connected to eating or sleeping or just the day-to-day routine of prison and it was a, a place I went to unconsciously without trying. I, I don't think I would have known how to yeah. get there, and I and I don't know how to get myself back into that headspace either. But I think it's a survival mechanism, and we yeah. probably all have it inside us.
0: You know. You're know. you incredibly lucky that you found it because I'm sure every day someone was saying, we could make this all stop if you just sign this.
3: They wanted me to make a false confession, yeah. uh, but... You know, it was clearly a crazy thing to do. Why would I confess to something that I hadn't done? And it would be, in my opinion, a hell of a lot worse for me should I give in to that pressure. And I'm so glad that I didn't because people who did make false confessions, I know some of them, some of them have even been given the death penalty as a result. Iranians, not Australian or or foreigners, but um, you can't take it back. It's a trick. Mm. They trick you into signing something and then you can't take it back no matter how hard you try. So I'm really glad that I stuck to my guns and continued to assert my innocence.
0: There was a trial. uh, You were sentenced to 10 years. What, after having, you know, been in prison for like, what, six months or something, at that point, knowing what it is, and they say, oh, by the way, here's 10 more years of it, what goes through your mind?
3: I was just in utter shock. Like, I did not expect 10 years. I knew they would give me a prison sentence because it was clear that the whole thing was a setup. They had to find me guilty and give me a sentence. And at that point, I knew that Iran did this with foreigners and that they wanted to leverage me to win concessions of some sort from the Australian or the British government. because I'm a dual citizen. I'd been in touch with other prisoners at that point, and they'd enlightened me that this is a situation that's happened before. Uh, they've got money, they've got prisoners in exchange for other foreigners or dual nationals that they've um, arbitrarily arrested in Iran. So I knew this was a pattern of behaviour, and I expected that I'd get a few years, and you know, then they'd trade me, horse trade me with the Australians or the Brits for for some other thing that they wanted. Oh, so the 10 years was a real blow because I was like 10 years like there's no evidence and and that was the main that was the um maximum for my yeah. charges. It was uh, shocking. Yeah. And, and impossible to process really.
0: What does consular assistance look like? I can only imagine that if you're an Australian diplomat posted to Tehran or in that area and you show up going, oh, man, we've got an academic in prison, there's going to have to be a prison swap here. Like I can't imagine how powerless that person would have felt coming to talk to you.
3: Yeah, so they they demanded the ambassador himself come. And the ambassador doesn't normally do consular visits, but the IRGC demanded that, I think. So I had three or four only with the, the male Australian ambassador to Iran at the time, Ian Biggs. He, after the interrogation phase was over, they blocked all consular assistance up until then. Once they'd sent my file to the court, they allowed uh, Ambassador Biggs to enter Evan prison, come to a special meeting room where I was accompanied by like four, maybe four or five revolutionary guards all sat around me intimidatingly. And um, I wasn't allowed to discuss my case with the ambassador. It was just meeting him as proof of life, I think. Look, she's here. She's not like, she hasn't been beaten up or she doesn't have a black eye or signs of torture or anything. And he was allowed to discuss my medical conditions, like if I'm, you know, healthy and getting food and medical care, which to be honest, I really wasn't getting medical care, but I was sort of told I'm not allowed to talk about this, I'm not allowed to talk about that, you know, all of these sensitive subjects, and I knew I was being monitored. And at that point, I was worried about being punished if I played up or uh, said the truth. So we had this just very brief conversation about basic medical stuff. They asked me to sign a privacy form for the Australian government, some bureaucracy that allowed them to share my situation with my family, and then the meeting was over.
0: Did he ever look in his eye like, I know that you know that you can't tell me what's going on, so I'm just going to try to eyeball you that we're going to do everything we can?
3: So there were two ambassadors to Iran. This one was just at the beginning and he was a bit more straight-laced, typical sort of old-school diplomat. He very much was worried, I think, about offending the Iranians or doing anything that could look undiplomatic. But For most of the time I was there, up until my release, there was a female ambassador, Lyndall Sachs, who was really amazing. And she was much more on the same page as me in terms of capacity for dodginess. And, you know, by the time she arrived too, I was resisting a lot. I was, you know, refusing to comply with whatever they were doing and and taking um, matters into my own hands in a way and, and... Causing trouble and resisting. So the meetings I had with her, which were at the end of 2019 and throughout 2020, I was trying to pass her information all the time, um, and we would have these like codes of speech where I would be like, "Can you please Assange this thing," <laughs> which meant leak this thing, you know. Or um, I just right. got off a, a World Vision 40 hour, right. and like the, the 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 minders wouldn't understand what I meant, but she got that it meant I was on hunger strike. So, yeah. me and her developed a sort of method of communication where I was able to communicate things to her that um, the, you know, the IRGC translators who weren't fluent in English anyway would never have understood.
0: When you go from, uh, you know, at first the chaos of what is happening to the acceptance of, okay, I'm here, I can find respite in my mind to, fuck this, no, I'm not going to. Like, what was the day when you went, that's it i'm i'm gonna start to i'm gonna agitate i i'm not gonna do this knowing full well that it could mean let's be honest death Uh,
3: i knew they wouldn't kill me because that that's of zero use to them whatsoever they once i understood how it worked that they would use me to extort my government to get some sort of concession and i was a bargaining chip in some diplomatic game i didn't believe their threats to give me the death penalty because I thought, well, what use is that? You know, you want something from Australia. If you kill me, it's just going to be bad PR for you and you're going to get nothing in return. (laughs) So I just laughed at them and said, that's bullshit. I don't believe you. But um, after they sent my case to court and I realised that it doesn't matter what I do, they've put me up for this charge of espionage despite zero evidence, despite my cooperating with them initially in the interrogations. I may as well resist them and and claw back some shred of dignity in doing so. Because if you just sit back and let other people, bad people, do things to you and you're a passive victim of that and never stand up for yourself, you dehumanize yourself as well. I wanted to assert some sort of agency and assert some sort of control over my fate, even if it be just winning myself concessions for prison conditions in, inside. So I, I started resisting in protest to this crazy charge that they'd um, sent to the court for me. And I started going on hunger strikes. That was the first method of resistance because that's only damaging you. You're not, It's not in their face. You're not sticking it to them in an obvious way. You're just damaging yourself. And that's why so many prisoners do it. And, you know, the first hunger strike I went on, I won. I got everything I demanded. And one of those things was consular access. I I hadn't seen any Australian representatives until that moment. I went on hunger strike. I demanded to see the ambassador. And in the end, I saw the ambassador. So I, I understood that I could influence them through my own actions, that they were responsive. So I started doing other things, like more active methods of resistance also we were passing notes me and and to other cells we'd, we'd established a communication channel and I, I was speaking in an air conditioning vent with the cell next to mine once every three nights on on a particular guard shift that was very lax and we had a note passing network using stolen pens and and scraps of packaging and paper and things that we would um, send to between each other using communal spaces like um, a communal laundry Drying rack and the outdoor exercise area, and these friends I, I never saw them face to face at that point, but they became my friends. These women in other cells would give me advice and would tell me that you know resisting can be an option. So I did start resisting, and I got banned from consular meetings and banned from calls to my family, and and had books taken away from me and all sorts of things because of my resistance, but. You know, they punished me to the extent that they had taken everything away from me that I valued. So I had nothing to lose. And when you have nothing to lose, you're actually more dangerous. So I I managed to escape even from the facility at one point and and climb up onto the roof of the interrogation block and cause chaos up there and disrupt all the other people's interrogations and screaming obscenities at them in English. And I got this big stick and started banging the, the corrugated iron roof of the Um, interrogation block with it to cause you know loud noises and and have the um, interrogations below me evacuated because they didn't know what was going on so yeah like I did all sorts of things um, and it it gave me something to do as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kylie I can't what's the difference between the first time you have a gun pointed at you and the 20th time you have a gun pointed at you as in stop doing that?
3: Oh, they never pointed the, a gun at me and said, "Stop okay. doing that." They had tasers, oh but my God. they couldn't—they couldn't get to me. So, like when I was up on the roof, it took them a couple of hours to actually get up there themselves to get me down because I had scaled a wall and climbed up an awning and on, on onto another wall and the gutter of the roof, and you know, it wasn't an easy access place. There was no way up, so you know, they weren't going to shoot me because that would be a disaster for them as well. Um, so I made all sorts of demands and in a way, some of them got fulfilled as well. I was demanding to go to court and finish my trial at that point. And I wanted a call to my family because I'd been banned from calling family um, months earlier. And I got a two minute call to my poor father, which was just me hysterical on the phone. And it probably wasn't a very good idea you know, to subject him to that. But yeah. yeah, so it, it it you know, I'm proud of myself for resisting them. Um, <sighs> it, uh, there was some risk, I guess, but at that point I didn't care. I was just totally apathetic.
0: Not everyone's going to get imprisoned by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, all right, but everyone's listening and at least there's some part of their life that they feel out of control over, whether it be their employment situation, their relationship they're in climate change, whatever. What happens when you decide to move from acceptance into I need to keep my dignity. If this is going to happen, I'm going to take some action in this direction. What happens inside you?
3: It's freeing. It's, I mean, I I guess people get this feeling when they make a really difficult decision, for example, leaving an abusive relationship, leaving a job that they feel connected to but isn't working for them anymore. You know, making that leap of faith and moving to something radically different, it's scary. But when you do it, it's freeing. And I wanted to have dignity and maintain my integrity. And I felt that cooperating with such an organization, with people who were just lying and tricking me all the time, was beneath my dignity. I had to express that I didn't accept what they were doing to me as an innocent person. That my human rights, I was being psychologically tortured. My human rights were being Mm. violated. International law was being violated. I knew what was being done to me wasn't acceptable and that I didn't deserve it. And I felt that I was able to restore my integrity as a human being and the values that I held as well. Not sacrifice them anymore by refusing to cooperate with them and go along with their erosion of my human rights. So it, it was freeing, and I'm glad I did it, even though I often got punished, <laughs> and it maybe even lengthened the time I eventually spent there. At least I came out with my integrity intact.
0: Kylie, it's so it's just so inspirational to hear you, you, to hear you speak like that. Yeah, the. As you mentioned, that you knew that the threat of of death uh, wasn't there, but the scars from that kind of psychological torture uh, last a lifetime, and not you know other physical dangers that you were putting yourself at risk of other assaults and things like that were most definitely there every day. To hear you speak like that, to hear the risks you took climbing up onto a roof that it took other people hours to get up—I mean, that risk alone. Like, it's just so inspirational to hear you speak. That is the most magnified version that I've ever heard of taking control, taking agency, and even if your situation doesn't change, at least that you feel okay within your own body. It's extraordinary to hear you say that.
3: Thank you. Uh, I don't know. Like, I think when you're in an extreme situation, you don't have a choice, really. You either step up and fight back or you let them beat you down and then you become a shadow of of a human being. And I've seen both I've because I had cellmates at various points and I knew many other prisoners too throughout the more than two years I spent there. And I saw the ones who gave up and had no fight left in them and just day after day suffered, suffered on their own in their cell and and let bad people do bad things to them and didn't fight back because they'd lacked the energy or they just went into a, a horrible dark place of despair and gave up. And I didn't want to be one of those people. Uh, It's just a decision you make whether you fight. It's like standing up to a bully or not, you know, whether you fight back or not. Because if you stand up to a bully and you fight back, you improve your own situation in the end. And that's what happened. I mean, I was able to win concessions about my conditions in prison because of drawing a red line in the sand around what I would accept and what I wouldn't accept. And... They modified their behavior because they didn't want the headache of me standing up to them, I noticed yeah. as well. If I would start to make noise about something in the prison, they would go, oh, God, here she goes again. All right, let's just give her what she wants so that she'll shut up and go away and, and leave us alone. You know, some of the prison guards, That that's how my relationship with them developed. So. You know, I was able to gain things for myself and very small concessions. But when you're a prisoner who has absolutely nothing, every little thing matters, you know, whether or not I could shower every day, for example, at the beginning, they only allowed me to shower once every three days. And this is in the middle of summer in Iran at the time or the end of summer where everything's hot and sweaty. And, you know, I I was distraught at that And, and toilet paper, they wouldn't give me toilet paper because in Iran the traditional religious people don't use toilet paper. They use these horrible squatter toilets with, with hoses and things. And I, as a Western person didn't know how to do that and wanted toilet paper and had a complete meltdown over it. the toilet paper was actually the trigger for more meltdowns than anything else. <laughs> um mm-hmm. And, you know, in the end they became so wary of me um challenging them over such a small insignificant issue that they just gave up and gave me toilet paper. So, you know, I learned that this, this, Method. Actually, I, I managed to retain my integrity and stand up for myself, but also it was effective in winning concessions. So it, it became yeah. my modus operandi after a while.
0: You go into uh, such more vivid and exquisitely written detail in uh, the book, The Uncaged Sky. And I'm grateful for your academic studies because the, the writing is, you know, stunning. Um, Have oh, you thank read? You. Because I just heard you say something before. Had you read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning? Because if you hadn't, you pretty much summarised the book <laughs> in about a oh, paragraph. Of,
3: I have that book on my bookshelf. I haven't read it, but somebody gave it to me as a gift when I came back from Iran and said, this is something you have to read. So it's actually on my list and it's on the bookshelf behind me right now. But, um, yeah, I haven't actually got around to reading it Kylie,
0: yet. You've, you've you've got to understand that anyone who's listening has read that book, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Victor Frankl was a psychologist imprisoned by the Nazis in a concentration camp. What you just said about who makes it and who doesn't is what Frankl writes about. And that you hadn't read it and the way you just described it, it, it just underlines that that is the thing that makes us human. There is It doesn't matter what culture you're from, what background you're from, man, woman, old, young, if you give up, and you lose your dignity and lose your integrity, then that's it. If you hold that hope and hold that integrity and, and value that, you can get through a lot. Hope is a tricky one. Was there hope that it's not going to be 10 years? Did you have to check yourself a bit?
3: Hope is essential along with dignity for survival. The times that I lost hope were the times that I could, couldn't get up in the morning. And there were few and far between, but they did happen. You know, I wasn't always strong and I wasn't always fighting them and I wasn't always hopeful that I would get out. But most of the time I was. And that's because, thankfully, you know, I was in touch with these other Iranian prisoners who enlightened me as to the fact that they will make a deal for me in the end because they've made deals for many other foreigners. This is something that the IRGC and the Iranians do, and I'm no use to them 10 years in prison and then being freed. I'm yeah. used to them, like what eventually happened, getting exchanged for three IRGC terrorists. That, they got something back for me. They got something yeah. from Australia in the end. So I knew and I had hoped that in the end, the Australians would come to the table and make a deal. I was frustrated about how long it was taking them. And also, unfortunately, one of the main stumbling blocks there was that they wanted to recruit me first. And they were using the 10 years as blackmail and using the atrocious prison conditions as blackmail to try to force me first to be recruited to the IRGC as a spy or an informer. And then they would have their cake and eat it too, get a deal with the Australian government, send me back to Australia, but as a spy for them. And they'd approached me so many times about it. So I knew that that was their tactic. And I kept refusing and we we entered this war of attrition where they would try to blackmail me and i would have to resist and this is why they didn't enter into any meaningful negotiations with the australian government for so long because they were wanting to break me down first get me to agree to inform for them and then enter the negotiations and you know on who survives prison and who doesn't and how you come out as well because people survive physically But that doesn't mean mentally they can recover. Or maybe they will recover eventually, but it takes a very, very long time to recover if your behavior in prison is something you're ashamed of. And I I actually thought a lot about Holocaust survivors and Holocaust stories when I was there because I remembered the phenomenon of people who collaborated with the Nazis from within Auschwitz, for example, to save themselves, throwing others under a bus, quite literally sending others to their death to save themselves or for an extra set of rations or an extra uh, scrap of bread. You know, I, I thought about these stories and there were plenty of prisoners who sold each other out in order to get that scrap of bread, you know, metaphorically speaking, in order to save themselves and do a deal with the devil by throwing their fellow innocent prisoners under a bus, being recruited, becoming an informer, and then sending information about what others were up to, to their, their captors so that they would be freed sooner. You know, I saw this many times and I was approached to work for them as well as a spy and I knew that I would have to do bad things to good people in order to get myself out via that route and I wasn't prepared to do it. And I'm glad I told them to fuck off and I actually quite literally told them to fuck off in that language <laughs> um, because, you know, that I've seen others, Some, a couple of my friends... One of my good friends actually got recruited, Um, but also I've seen plenty of informers within both two prisons I was in, and it eats away at your soul. You know, you know that morally you've done something inexcusable. If you are adding to others' suffering by your actions, others get longer convictions, longer sentences, or their family members might be rounded up, or other innocent people on the outside might be thrown in prison because of your actions. How do you live with yourself? So uh, I think that's a really important point too. I mean, I, you have to assert your dignity by maintaining those moral standards as well. And hope is very important too. Uh, people who lost hope, I remember one at one point I lost, I, was, I just gave into despair. There was one day, it was a diplomatic deal that had fallen through and I blamed myself for it, my own actions for it. And I spent this several hour period lying prostrate on the floor. I was despairing so much I couldn't move my own limbs. I was trying to move my arms and my legs, and the signals coming from my brain to those limbs just, they, they were so weak that my, my body wouldn't move when I was trying to command it to move. I was that despairing. Yeah. Wow. And it didn't last long, but I think I've seen other prisoners inhabit that very dangerous, bleak space for extended periods, and it just it kills you. You, you know, you really... Yeah give up any will to live
0: the mind is a, a absolutely fascinating thing isn't it the, that the, the mind will shut off uh, messages to move your muscles as a yeah that's pro, a protection mechanism even or as a there's no it, it's i'm sure it's got something to do with dopamine um because dopamine's mm-hmm. involved in making my hand move as it is now um and it makes sense it makes sense that your body would stop working and responding like that um How do you come out of that? How do you come out of that state?
3: I don't know how I came out of it. A lot of these mental processes, your brain just does it of its own accord. You enter a headspace where I guess the instinctive part of your brain takes over and you, as a conscious person, commanding your body or your brain to do X, Y, Z, it doesn't work. Your brain goes there and of its own accord. So when I was in that dark place of despair, somehow I managed to pull myself out of it without consciously trying to, because I'd given up on all hope at that point. I, I wasn't trying to pull myself out of it. I'd given up. I didn't have the mental strength to try and pull myself out of it, but somehow my brain did it anyway without me telling myself to.
0: There was a prisoner exchange, as you mentioned, three convicted, imprisoned terrorists was, were swapped for you. At what point from, you know, okay, we're getting you out uh, in the van, driving to the airport, like, did you think, oh, this is all, this is all a part of it, they're just going to turn me around to try and break me again? Like, did, did you, when did you believe, oh, no, this is real?
3: They had played so many tricks on me and there had been so many diplomatic deals that had fallen through that I just, up until the moment that I crossed out of Iranian airspace on the plane, I held a tiny piece of myself back thinking, it's not over till it's over. They can route the plane and, and turn it around and force it to land anywhere. like, And they'd actually threatened me with that too. So it was a possibility. Even... When I left the prison on the day of my release and was taken to the ambassador's residence in Tehran, I still couldn't breathe. I still had that anxiety that, okay, something can happen. They can pick me up again. This all could be an elaborate trick, and an elaborate plot. So whilst I was ecstatic to be freed and especially when I was taken to the Australian ambassador's residence and I saw Nick Warner, the um, intelligence chief who'd been sent as an envoy by the Australian government and I saw the Australian ambassador, Lyndall Sachs, there and I thought, okay, I'm amongst friends now. I'm amongst people who wish me well, who, you know, I had my first – Coffee in more than two years. And that was amazing. You know, and I immediately said, Give me another one. You know, I had a flat white and I was like, Make another one, even though I was totally buzzed because, you know, I hadn't had the caffeine. I, I still couldn't give in to that euphoria at that point because I had this lingering worry and doubt in my mind that something could derail it. Still, it was only when we left Iranian airspace on the plane and I knew that there was no way they could come after me that I just properly allowed myself to breathe and relax.
0: Because that is that is that that is that moment in the film we were speaking about earlier, the moment in Argo where, and it's not long, it's only a couple of minutes, Iran's not the biggest country. There's that moment in Argo where they come over the pier and go, ladies and gentlemen, we've left Iranian airspace. What, what goes through your body?
3: I think it was just sort of a, a feeling of relief, yeah. just... I was exhausted at that point because I'd barely slept the previous night and it had been a really full-on day to get to that point that I was on the plane and I was sitting by the window seat looking outside at the sky and it was sort of dusk and becoming night and there was this beautiful velvety blue colour with stars popping up and the theme of the sky carried throughout the book which is why I called the book The Uncaged Sky and I just remember looking at that symbol of the sky with the stars just starting to appear and and it was for me a symbol of freedom and I had this just feeling of relief wash over me as I looked at those stars and thought okay your life is restarting time felt frozen for me for that two years and and three months I was there time just didn't have the same quality that it it normally had in the outside world and I thought okay time's unfrozen now and it's starting up again and it's like a rebirth my life literally was beginning again from that moment
0: was there something that you decided well if this is what it's going to be like are you're like okay well I'm not the girl who has to climb on top of an interrogation hut anymore you know <laughs> or were you like well, I'm going to go through the rest of my life like this like was there a way that you're like well now I'm out what am I going to do with this
3: I still am the girl that would climb on the interrogation building and scream bloody murder at the IRGC and throw sticks at them and whatever because I know I have that inside me and I have that inner strength. I have that wellspring of inner strength I can draw on, I know, in a crisis. And that's power because unless you're put through a life and death experience like that, you don't know what you're capable of. And when you discover that you're stronger than you think you were, that gives you a sense of power. So I'm actually happy that I learned those lessons about myself. I am still the same person as I was when I traveled to Iran initially, but I know that I'm stronger than I thought I was. I made a vow to myself on that plane as I flew out that I wouldn't be a victim and I wouldn't come back to Australia, a shattered mess and a, a shell of my former self, that I would try to find the silver lining and look to the future with hope and Obviously, I've been through a really traumatic experience and it's not always easy and there were negative lessons that I learned from it too. But I'm determined to focus on the positive and try to use the voice that I have to speak out for the friends that I left behind in prison to draw attention to Iran's terrible human rights record and this phenomenon of hostage diplomacy that unfortunately they've been practicing for more than 40 years and try to better myself as a result of this I mean, it's not easy always, but I do have optimism for my future, and I am proud of myself. And it, I guess it speaks to the point I was making earlier that if you do bad things in prison and you compromise those core values and you sell out, and you do, you know, you sell out to others, you inform on others, you do a deal with the devil, and and you feel ashamed of yourself for that because I saw people who did that and I knew they carried that shame with them then it's so much harder to get over the experience. But because I'm proud of myself for backing my values, maintaining my integrity, I feel that I I can recover more quickly and that I I still have that hope inside me for the future.
0: A moment away from Kylie Moore Gilbert to let you know that there's gigs coming up. Uh, They start, crikey, uh, next Friday. Fucking hell. They're upon us, 27th of January at the... Factory Theatre in Marrickville. That is when we begin, and it is on. It is on on on. It's a it's a live satirical news show called NTN NNN, that Nighttime News Network, National Nightly News. Like we're pretending to be a fake news TV show, all right? But we're doing it live on stage, and it's a lot of fun. We talk about the news of the day. It's a it's a, like a fake TV show, but live, and there's ad breaks. It's great. And no two shows are ever the same because we do talk about the actual news of the day. So if you come along, you know, you buy some tickets, you know, one week, come the next week because it'll be completely different. And I think you really will want to come back more than once. There's design. I built the show so that you would want to come back more than once. You'd want to enjoy it again and again. Only 20 bucks. Uh, We made it as cheap as we possibly could so we could still pay everyone involved because there's a bunch of people on stage with me. But it is fuck tons of fun and I can't wait to start. I'm terrified. Absolutely terrified. But hey, you know. You've got to do it. You've got to, you've got to stretch yourself into parts that are uncomfortable. Am I you know, terrified that I've, I've booked a theatre in, in this room and <laughs> that might be very empty when we get in there and uh, that I still have to pay for the theatre hire and that all the people that are on stage with me and all the equipment and everything? Yes. Am I terrified that I've tried this professional thing that might not work? Yes. Will it be good information afterwards? Yes. Will I have learned something? Yes. Will I be okay? Yes. So I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot. 27th of January at the Factory Theatre. We start. There's tickets on sale for I think the next couple of Fridays. We're doing it every Friday um, for a while, and if it goes well, hopefully a long while. And if it goes really well, hopefully all the way to Melbourne. So if you know if you're in Melbourne, you know people in Sydney. Get them to get around it. All right. Say so I God, I want to see this show. For goodness sake, he won't shut up about it. I really wanted to go. And I can't go because he won't come to Melbourne unless it does well in Sydney. So if there's people in Sydney that you know, get on them. We're back in a minute uh, with Kylie Moore Gilbert. I've got to play some ads and then we'll finish off the rest of our chat with Kylie.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
0: When you land, what you can't just be expected to go. All right, well, good luck. Uh, here's your Medicare card that you lost, and um,
3: see you soon. Uh, unfortunately, that was what happened. I didn't get any um, treatment, or uh, look. I, it was I fell through the cracks. I think because of COVID to a certain extent, because I had I w- got off the plane and went straight to hotel quarantine for two weeks. So no doctors <laughs> hang could visit on, me in hotel quarantine. Hang, wait, wait.
0: 804 days in an Iranian prison. Welcome back to Australia. You're finally free. Don't leave your hotel
3: room. Yep. We're going to imprison you in a hotel room for two weeks. (laughs) It was a luxury prison, though. I had the internet. I had, you know, online shopping and and TV (laughs) and, you know, it was nothing like being in prison. But, yeah, I I did do hotel quarantine.
0: God, (laughs) Kylie. While I'm disappointed to learn that there was no support there for you, is it something that you sought?
3: I expected there would be, um, and I, I actually didn't even get a medical checkup, again, because of the hotel quarantine, and I was actually really worried more about the physical health side because I'd been in a prison Uh, which had a lot of infectious diseases, including AIDS and, you know, all sorts of nasty um, stuff. And COVID, of course. So I was worried that I'd picked up hepatitis or something. And I said, I want to have a blood test and for absolutely everything under the sun that you can imagine, because I yeah. hadn't had any checkups like that for the entire time I was there. So we had plenty of drug addicts and people on methadone and various oh, yeah. dodgy characters in check, which was a public prison I was in for three months. And um, I knew I'd been exposed to these people, so I was really paranoid about that. And I actually had to ask DFAT specifically when I was in hotel quarantine, please, can you send a doctor to do a blood test? And they said no, we can't because you're in hotel quarantine. So I had to wait until uh, that period was over, and and then um, I did have a blood test by, you know, a DFAT accredited doctor. And in terms of mental health treatment, there was absolutely nothing, and there was no program in in place for you um to be i guess readjusted back into society so i just came home and um had to deal with all of that on my own as as a regular citizen
0: Uh, well i I, i'm not going to ask whether you did or not but i i hope that you got some support around that because that's something that you're going to want to you know if, if you'd been through a motorcycle accident they'd you know teach you how to walk properly again
3: Yeah, I actually didn't need it at the beginning because I was on such a high. I was, I just, for about six months, I had this sense of utter euphoria where I was just ecstatic to be free. And I just was, no, I didn't need, I wasn't traumatized. I was just partying. Like I was seeing all my friends, my family. I was having a great time. I was enjoying my freedom and just luxuriating in that feeling of being free. And really the only thing that put a stop to that Feeling was lockdown in Melbourne. <laughs> um, yeah, so, oh COVID strikes again, you know, like, in, and then I was locked down inside my own house um, alone because I live alone oh, and, and all my fuck. family's in New South Wales and I'm in Victoria. So, that kind of sucked. But, um, and that sort of brought me back down to earth and got me back into a regular headspace. But for those initial few months, I, I don't think I needed any psychological treatment because I just had this utter. Yeah. Just ecstasy, you know, feeling. It was almost like being yeah. on drugs, you know, I was that, yeah, that bet. happy.
0: And that's what everyday life is, even in lockdown. That's what life is for people. And that was all they were complaining about, you know. And it's it's extraordinary to think about, you know, how everything is relative, you know. Everything's, everything's relative. Oh, my favorite restaurant's outside of my delivery zone. Now I can't leave. Boo. It's, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <It's> all... <laughs> First world problems for sure.
0: <laughs> First world problems. <laughs> Kylie, I've, <I'm... sighs> Look, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm being so generous with your book, and I I really hope people, because there's a lot, a lot more to the story, including what went on with your ex-husband, which is a whole other factor that is so intense. Um, So I I really encourage people to read it. And, look, I'm going to ask you this because it is something that's really people tend maybe don't think about, you know what's what's going on in in that part of the world there's someone who's extraordinarily knowledgeable about um, the the middle east and the astronomical rise of some of these these countries as far as you know socioeconomic status goes and, and you know where people who like oh, I don't want to buy that shirt because it's not made from organic cotton but will happily pump petrol into their car not knowing what country that petrol's come from what would you say about the the, the coupling of, of energy, uh, importing energy into our country and the supporting of governments that do things like this?
3: I'm very worried about that because, you know, they're negotiating a new Iran nuclear deal right now and they seem to be very close to resolving that. And one thing that's being talked about is, oh, well, we're having to... Um, remove Russian oil and gas from world markets. So let's just replace it with Iranian oil. You know, Iran has the second biggest oil reserves in the world. They've been sanctioned now because of its support for terrorism and its nuclear program. Let's just unfreeze all of those sanctions on Iran and open up Iranian oil again and flood world markets with Iranian oil to replace the Russian oil that they've now sanctioned. And I don't think that Iran is any better than Russia in terms of its human rights record, in terms of its meddling in and causing wars in other countries neighboring. Uh you know, it's it's actually quite distressing to me to think that hundreds of millions if not billions now are going to flow to that regime once they sign the JCPOA and open up Iranian oil markets again. So I don't know what the solution is. I do think that obviously they need to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons and negotiating with them over that is also very important. But I think seeing Iran and other nefarious aut- autocracies as a solution to economic problems without dealing with the human rights impacts of that is a big problem. And it's going to come round and bite us in the ass in the West because enabling the Iranian regime and others to by sending them millions of, of, of dollars in unfrozen assets, de-sanctioning them, buying their oil again?
0: I, I did lead you towards that question, but to hear it spelled out, because I don't think people think about that. We, as Australians, we import from, I think it's 17 countries. We import our liquid fuel from and we rely upon that. And we just tend not to think about it's $2.20 a litre of it. We tend not to think about where that $2.20 goes. You know, there's that fuel excise which pays for road repair, but there's... Sense there's dollars in every one of your fuel tanks that goes to one of these countries that are doing stuff like that was done to you. And we wouldn't, if, you know, if it was like, you mentioned World Vision, but it was like, for a dollar a day, you can support this country imprisoning someone, you'd never do it.
3: It's really great to think of it in that
0: way. You know, I know that I'm... I'm trying to get conversations out there around thinking differently about energy and, 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 and what it would, what decoupling our economy from fossil fuel energy means not only on a global warming scale but also on a on a political scale and a human rights scale. Um so thank you for in, in uh, indulging me uh, <laughs> with you
3: Oh, happy to talk about this stuff. It's actually more comfortable for me to talk about political uh, for policies and things than it is to talk about myself, <laughs> which is always Quite strange. <laughs> As an academic, I'm more comfortable talking about academic. Well,
0: subjects. I got to say that you've you've given us all an incredible gift, and in that you went through what you went through, and then chose to share it so that others might learn. And even just in this conversation, what you've given us about hope, about uh, self determination, about uh, agency, about taking some control, about agitating for change. And then allowing that sense of dignity to be the thing that helps keep you up, get you out of bed every day, even in an incredibly terrifying and, and uncontrollable situation. That is that's an incredible gift you've given us today, Kylie. And there's so much more in the book. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today.
3: Oh, gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an utter pleasure, Osha. It's just so lovely to virtually meet you and to chat with you. So, I'm yeah, I'm so happy we did this.
0: That was Kylie Moore Gilbert. What a conversation. What a chat. What an inspirational story. Heavy. But, yeah, I took a lot out of that. I remember that conversation quite a bit when I'm, uh, I don't know.
2: Oh, this sucks. Oh, I
0: don't remember that stuff. It's excellent. Don't forget to jump in the show notes of the episode. That's where you can find the link to the tickets to buy the uh, tickets to go and see the, uh, the new live show that starts next Friday at the Factory Theatre in Sydney. 27th we start next Friday and then a f- couple of Fridays after that if it goes well hopefully way more Fridays after that <sighs> I'm scared but it's going to be alright we're back on Monday with a brand new episode thank you very much to everyone that helped me make this one uh, which include uh, Bree Steele my researcher Andy Ma, who does audio and video post-production Rachel Barrett who executive produces everything and the marvellous Toe who made the music you're listening to right now he's great and I just got his new album the other day in the mail <laughs> I don't even have a CD player, but I own it. I own a CD, a new CD now. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you Wednesday. Have a good one.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer. Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.